This morning, the sermon's gonna be from 1 Peter chapter 1, verses three through nine. If you have a Bible, you can turn there. If you don't have a Bible, in your worship folder, you'll find a, a sermon guide that will have the scripture printed so that you can follow along. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses three through nine. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's powers are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. My wife and I, a couple nights ago, we were watching a documentary on uh, Netflix and it was, a, it was a fascinating documentary. Uh, maybe you have seen it or heard, but it was uh, about a young girl, Lauren Decker. She was uh, 14 years old at the time and was setting out to become the youngest person ever to sail around the globe by herself. And yet 14 years old, probably a freshman in high school. And so this documentary, it, it told the story and she was by herself, there was no boat following, and she had her little camera, and so she just filmed herself and filmed the journey, and they put it together in this documentary, and it was just, it was fascinating. You know, 30 days to cross the Atlantic Ocean, you know, no wind and, uh, to sail with, and so the boat just bobbing out in the middle of the Atlantic, and her just filming herself, hoping that one day she would, you know, make it around the world. It turns out her trip took I think 520 or so days. She did port at times, uh, but almost a year and a half. And though it was fascinating, for me, the most striking part of this documentary was when she was arriving uh, at her final destination, having gone around the world, which she landed or ported in St. Martin in the Caribbean. And, uh, and just think about it. This was her dream from well beyond 14 years old. She had been dreaming of doing this. She wanted to accomplish it. And, and she documents pulling in and there's boats that are coming alongside of her and people are cheering on the boats and they're raising their arms. And it's like this hero has come to shore. They've got this big you know, media waiting for her to come on shore. And you can tell in the, in the documentary of what she's saying, she's terribly uncomfortable with this. And very underwhelmed that she has sailed around the world. And she gets to shore and they, they, they show her getting off and she's standing there and there's crowds around her and she's just kind of sitting there. Like, this is really no big deal. And then the documentary ends with, she kept sailing. She sailed halfway around the world to New Zealand. And what was striking about it, because it was the theme throughout the whole documentary that you could pick up on is that she was chasing something. And when she finally got to her goal, around the world, break the, the record, you know, newspaper clippings, didn't do it for her. 
she was left just unfulfilled. So she said, I'm going to keep sailing and I'm going to go to New Zealand, you know, chasing at some point, maybe my hopes and my dreams that I thought sailing around the world would be filled, they were dashed and she kept looking for more. And as we watched the end of the documentary, I thought, isn't that how life is? We chase and we chase dreams and hopes of what we think a, a good life will be. And then sometimes we arrive at it. Sometimes those hopes come to fruition and we arrive and we go, ah, oh, didn't give me what I thought it would give me. Most of the time though, those hopes are left shattered. They're dashed. We never actually get there. And so it begs the question, is there a hope that doesn't disappoint? Is there a hope that cannot be dashed? Is there a hope that cannot be destroyed? And to answer that question, we're gonna explore three questions. First, where does hope begin? What is the nature of hope? And why is hope possible? So let's start with where does hope begin? Verse three, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again into a living hope. So being born again is the beginning of hope. Now, what does that mean? And there are all kinds of stereotypes and cultural thoughts of what being born again means, and most of the time it's not very good. So we're gonna unpack, what does it really mean to be born again? Because that's the beginning of hope. Jesus uses this phrase, born again, multiple times in John chapter three. And it's a chapter where he's having a conversation with a man named Nicodemus. And Nicodemus is a religious leader of the day. He's a, a ruler. Uh, he, he knows the Bible. He teaches the Bible. He's a good moral man. And Jesus says a shocking statement to him. He says, Nicodemus, unless you're born again, you cannot see or enter the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus, I think mildly offended by this, replies, how am I supposed to enter into my mother's womb a second time and be born again? Now, he was a smart man. He wasn't literally thinking that's what Jesus was talking about. Here's what he was saying. Jesus, do you know who you're talking to? Do you realize who you're talking to? I am the religious leader of Israel. I know the Bible. I teach the Bible. I'm a good moral man. If anybody's a shoe in for the kingdom of God and for heaven, it's me. You see, Jesus was unpacking a, a common misunderstanding of Christianity. Christianity is not a religion of rules by which you make a better version of yourself or an improved self. Christianity is God proclaiming and by his spirit and power, not making you an improved version of yourself, but a brand new self with a brand new life. You know, God's mode of operation is not uh, like extreme makeover, you know, where some ordinary person gets, you know, some makeup and some trendy clothes and they become this fashion model of sorts, right? This kind of outside in approach. No, no, God works from the inside out. Now, I had something similar to, I guess you'd call extreme makeover, my, in between my eighth and ninth grade year uh, of schooling. So eighth grade year, we're finishing middle school, and there was a girl 
friend of ours and in my class, Kristen. And uh, Kristen was a nerd, like we all were, right? Middle school years, just awkward years, trying to find yourself, who are you? Um, and, and, but she was, and she had glasses and braces and straight hair and you know, didn't dress in trendy clothes and hiked the pants up, just like I did. All of that was going on, okay? Freshman year, starting in a new high school, first day of school, uh, you know, before the bell rang, me and my friends are standing out there, and, and then up walks Kristen. And jaws start to drop. It doesn't look like Kristen. Uh, she had uh, curly hair, crimped, I don't know, whatever the style was, hairspray in it, okay? Uh, no glasses, no braces, makeup, and some trendy fluorescent clothing, which in the late 80s was the way you dressed if you wanted to be popular. In the midst of all the jaw dropping as Kristen walked up, guess what? It was still Kristen. It was still Kristen. She talked the same. She still had the annoying laugh. It was Kristen. New birth means new life. New birth is not a cosmetic makeover or change. It's, it's God working not on your behavior to change you on the outside and then get to your heart. No, 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 no. Being born again means being, becoming a brand new person, having a new life. St. Augustine, he's one of the uh, men early in the, in the fourth century, he had a, a big influence on the church, the early church. And St. Augustine will tell the, the story of his conversion of how he was born again, how he came to trust Jesus Christ and, and find new life. And as he tells his story, he tells about after coming to Christ, after being born again, okay, and experiencing this conversion, how he was out and about one day and one of his old mistresses came up to him and threw herself on him. And prior to his conversion, he would have responded and that's what he did but he didn't respond. And so this woman was stunned. And she said, Augustine, it's me. And he replied, and he said, but it's not me. It's not me. See, he was a new man, a completely new man with a new life that he had been, he had been born again. The question becomes, though, what does happen on the inside? What happens on the inside what comes into you when you're born again upon trusting Christ? There's another word for born again in the scriptures, and it's the word that gets translated regeneration. We see it in uh, Titus 3, chapter, or chapter 3, verse 5. It says, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. That word for regeneration in the original language that the Bible was written in, which is Greek, is palingenesia. And it appears in another place in the Bible, in Matthew chapter 19, verse 28, when Jesus is speaking to his disciples and he says this, truly I say to you, in the new world, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne. And what Jesus is talking about there is at the end of time, that when he comes back and purges this world of everything that doesn't belong, 
sin, death, corruption, violence, injustice, everything that's not right, that he's gonna purge it all. And that's called the renewal of all things. Guess what that word renewal is? It's palingenesia. What that means is that, I mean, just imagine the power it's going to take to remove all of the evil and what doesn't belong in this world. I mean, think about what we just saw this past week in Brussels. And that, that has happened over and over, right? The greatest military in the world has not been able to defeat terror, right? It just continues to multiply. But there's a day when that will be completely defeated. Imagine the power it would take to do that. That's the power Jesus has. And he says that tremendous power that will make all things new is the power that comes into you through Jesus Christ. That that's the power that comes into you. Second Peter uh, 1.3 says that God puts his lifeblood in you. Puts his lifeblood in you. And what that produces is amazing. If you look at the people to who Peter is writing in chapter one, verse eight, listen, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. These are people, as we're gonna see in verses six and seven, who are experiencing tremendous hardship, tremendous trouble, and yet what they say here is they're experiencing this incredible, incredible joy, this new life of being born again, that God, when he rebirths you upon trusting Jesus, when he rebirths you, he plants in you this new vitality, this new energy, this new joy, this new love for life that transcends all of your circumstances. That that's what it means to be born again. And that that is the beginning of hope. But what kind of hope are you birthed into? And this brings us to our second question. What is the nature of hope? Whether you realize it or not, hope is the foundation of life. You may not actively think about that, but let me try to explain that hope is actually the foundation of life. Proverbs 13, 12 says this, hope deferred makes the heart sick, but a desire fulfilled is a tree of life. And so what we learn here is that hope is desire and expectation, and that you actually build your life on the things that you put your hope in, or that you desire. Here's how it works. If, if, if you hope or desire security, then you're gonna figure out what fulfills that desire and then build your life on it. If, if you uh, find or believe that you're gonna find security or have it fulfilled by making lots of money, then you're gonna build your life on making lots of money. If, if you believe or find that, um, that uh, significance is ultimately the hope and the desire you have Right? You're gonna find what brings significance to your life and you're gonna build your life on that hope. So if, if, if a good job or a, a successful career is gonna fulfill that need for significance, then you're gonna build your life on a career. Uh, if, it's, if it's pleasure, if you say, listen, I, my hope, I wanna, I'm hoping and desiring for pleasure 
believing that it's gonna be fulfilled, uh, then you'll build your life on that. So if it's, uh, if it's exotic vacations that are gonna fill that need for pleasure, then you'll build your life on, you'll live for exotic vacations. I, what I want you to see is that every one of us is living our lives according to our hopes because hopes are desires and expectations. And that hope is actually the foundation of life. So second, what is the nature of hope? It's the foundation of life. But second, it's a living hope, meaning it's, it's imperishable, the hope that, that Peter's talking about here. It's imperishable, right? Verse four, so birthed into a living hope to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. What's being described here is an imperishable hope. All hopes outside of Jesus Christ are perishable. And what God longs to do is to, by birthing you into it, is to move you from perishable hopes into imperishable hopes. Consider this example. There's a lumberjack in a forest and he's chopping down trees. And he goes up to this tree and he's ready to chop it down. He looks up and he sees a bird that's building her nest in the top of the tree. So he turns the ax around, and he starts banging the tree to get this bird to fly away. Bird finally flies away, chops the tree down. Moves on to the next tree in the forest. About to chop it down, looks up. Bird has landed on that tree and built her nest there. So he turns the ax around and he bangs on the tree until the bird leaves. He does this over and over and this bird keeps hopping from tree to tree until finally he bangs on a tree and this bird flies to a high rock where she builds her nest. You see, God wants to move you from your perishable hopes because every tree in this world is gonna fall. Every tree is gonna fall. And God is trying to move you from these perishable hopes to an imperishable hope that's found in Christ. So hope is the foundation of life. Living hope is imperishable. And third, we see it's joy-producing. It's joy-producing. Look at verse six. It says, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. What does in this mean? In this, meaning in this living hope, this imperishable hope, you find joy, even though there's trials and hardships and shattered dreams and unmet desires. See, imperishable hope transcends circumstances. And that there's a joy that is deep and that is rich. I want you to notice in verse six that, that joy and pain are both present tense. Joy and pain are both present tense. Hope impacts how you experience life today. Consider this. You put two people in a room doing the same task. To the one person, you say, when you finish this task, I'm gonna give you $100. To the other person, you say, when you finish this task, I'm gonna give you $10,000. Same exact task. They start working. About halfway through, you give them a break. The person who was promised $100 is complaining about the tediousness of the task, how they're tired of doing it. The person that was promised $10,000 is just clipping along. 
Not worried, not, not concerned. Don't mind the task, don't mind the job. And you see what this is teaching us, right? That, that hope impacts how you live your life today. That it impacts how you experience the present. That you experience your present in radically different ways depending on your hope. Right? If your hope is set on something that is perishable, when trial comes or hardship comes and you lose that something, you fall apart. If you're building your hope on a career and you lose your job, you fall apart. If you're building your hope on successful children and one of your children goes off the deep end, you fall apart. If you're building uh, your hope on a relationship and you break up, you fall apart. But if you build your hope on Jesus Christ, then all of the trials and the hardships and the troubles do nothing but drive you to your real joy. And that's why it's an imperishable hope that's indestructible, that's found in the risen Christ. Listen to this. Even the foretaste of hope in Christ is stronger than the aftertaste of perishable hopes. Even the foretaste of hope in Christ is stronger than the aftertaste of perishable hopes. So is there a hope that doesn't disappoint? Yes. It starts with new birth that births you into this imperishable hope that is indestructible. But this brings us to the last question. This is an important one because there may be some of you that at this point are going, this is great, but this is just kind of good rah-rah talk <laughs> about Jesus and, and about finding hope in him, but it's just very, uh, I can't get my hands on it. And this last question is critical to answer. And that is, why is hope possible? Why is hope possible? You know, hope in the Bible is very different than how we tend to use the word. Okay, in our culture, we use the word hope uh, more as a synonym for wishful thinking, right? Like, uh, I hope that the Jaguars win more than four games next year, okay? Or, I hope uh, to win the lottery, Hope in the Bible is, is used very differently. In fact, a couple verses later in verse 13, Peter says, hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, what he's saying is not desire for Jesus to return and, and you know, we hope it'll happen. We're not sure. No, he's saying hope there is an intense desire for something and full confidence that it'll be fulfilled. That's what biblical hope is. An intense desire for something and full confidence that it will be fulfilled. That that's what hope is. And what's the basis for the confidence? It's not positive thinking. Positive thinking is not the basis for the confidence we have. It's verse three. He caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. There is such thing as imperishable hope because Jesus rose from the dead. If Jesus didn't rise, if he's not alive today, 
then there's no such thing as imperishable hope. Our hopes are, are no different than anything else in the world. That's what the Apostle Paul meant when he wrote in 1 Corinthians 15. He said several times, and if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Verse 17, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. Let me paraphrase that. If Christ was not raised, this is all a joke. It really is. It's a cruel joke of what we're doing. If Jesus didn't raise and he's not alive today, we see it in uh, Thomas, one of the disciples. Thomas uh, was, and he gets the name Doubting Thomas because he said to Jesus, or he said to his disciples, he said, I need to see the nail marks in his hands. I need to see the, the wound in his side where the spear went, if I'm gonna believe. So Jesus shows up with the disciples, with Thomas. He says, Thomas, look at my hands, look at my side. Now, we oftentimes say, oh, Thomas, he's just a doubter, right? I don't think that's what's going on there. No, what Thomas was saying was, if Jesus is alive, then everything has changed. Thomas realizes the purpose of my life, the trajectory of the world, the way I handle my difficulties and my trouble and my trials, my hopes. He realized that everything hinged on Jesus being alive. That's why he needed to touch his hands and put his hand in his side. And you say, well, we can't touch him today. No, but we've got the scriptures. And and it says that Jesus appeared to more than 500 people at once after his resurrection. And that when, when Paul wrote the letter, 1 Corinthians, a letter that said Jesus rose from the dead, that many of those 500 people were still alive. And so if it was a conspiracy, if it was a, you know, some sh um, sham that was pulled off, there were many people who would have said, no. In other words, if... If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then these letters that said he did would have been refuted and never would have been circulated. That Jesus really did rise from the dead. Why is hope possible? Because he rose. And because he rose, that means he's coming back. End of verse five, a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. End of verse seven, may be found a result in praise, glory, honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Christ. You see, Jesus says, I rose from the dead. I'm coming back to purge this world of everything that doesn't belong. All the sin, the injustice, the terror, the evil, the pain, I'm going to get rid of it all. He wrote the beginning of the story when he rose from the dead, and he's written the end of the story, which will be revealed when he returns. See, the difference between perishable hope and imperishable hope is the difference between watching your favorite sports team play live and your favorite sports team playing on a recording. Let me explain. Your favorite team is in the championship game. It's the final two minutes of the game. You're watching it live. It's a nail biter. It's close. And you are on the edge of the couch. You're screaming at the TV. You're jumping up and down. You're throwing the remote. You've got the knot in your stomach. You're losing years off your life as the clock's ticking down, right? Why? Because you don't know the outcome. You don't know if your team's gonna win. Now imagine watching your favorite team play that same game, the same final two minutes on recording, 
and you know the outcome, you know they've won. What a difference. You sit on the couch, you don't yell and scream, you're not running around the room, you're not throwing the remote, you're calm, why? Because you know the outcome. Jesus Christ has won the victory. And he's written the story from beginning, rising from the dead, to the end when he returns, which means that you can have a hope that is tied to him and to that victory. And when it's tied to him, all of the anxiety and the worry and the sadness and the depression, all the emotions that surround, right, the uncertainty of your life and the uncertainty of this world are eclipsed by this hope and this confidence in the one who has written the story that you know the outcome to, that he's alive. And so in the midst of your shattered dreams, your unmet desires, your troubles, your trials, God wants to say to you this morning, there is a hope that is not attached to those circumstances that there is a hope that's attached to the risen one, to the risen Jesus, who has written the beginning of the story and has written the end and is gonna reveal the end. That there's an imperishable hope that's attached to him and not to your circumstances. And we're gonna hear a story, a real live story of what that looks like for a couple, uh, Joe and Carly, on their journey and what it looked like for them to find hope in Jesus over and above their circumstances. I was diagnosed with breast cancer when um, I was 36. It was February of 2006. January 27th. Right? It was January 27th, 2006. I'm never good at remembering dates. Joe always helps me remember. I remember the call, and Joe and I were right there by the phone, and we listened together and um, to her tell, tell me that the biopsy had come back malignant and that I did have um, cancer, but I just remember the overwhelming feeling of just emotion, just what does this mean? I was trying to take in what does this mean and I was immediately wondering, you know, what's gonna happen to my wife and how far does this rabbit trail go? And most importantly, I was scared for Carly. And uh, I didn't, you know, for me, it was like, I don't want to lose my wife. Um, I don't want these boys to lose their mom. But I remember being um, alone one night. Joe had been out for something, and I was in the middle of treatment. Um, and all of a sudden, I, I'd been watching Oprah. Um, and I don't, I typically didn't watch it. and the episode that was on was about a lady who had breast cancer and um, died and she left a video 
for her daughter, who was going to be growing into a teenager and a young adult, she left videos for every sort of significant stage of her life. And nobody was there, the boys were in bed, and I just started bawling. And it just finally hit me that that could be me. This could happen. Later that night, Joe came home. I eventually told him that that had upset me and, you know, and I just remember him saying, none of us know what tomorrow brings. We can't live our life in fear, um, you know, and, and I knew he was right, and I knew that I had to just trust the Lord with what he had for me and believe that that was best. Soon after I was diagnosed, the Lord providentially um, had planned, had had me and us as staff women planned to go on a silent retreat and really had time to just be alone and be quiet. And one of the exercises or one of the times together was spend some time just really thinking about an encounter with Jesus and um, really let God speak to you. As I began to just pray, um, I really began, uh, I felt like I had um, sort of something very, very specific, very clear to me, vision, you know, in my vision, um, where Jesus was walking beside me and he had his arm around me and we were walking beside a stream and there was a really pretty tree and green grass. And um, I had been struggling since the diagnosis with just I was so fearful that I would do the wrong thing. So I was just like, I don't know what to do. Lord, show me what to do. Lord, show me what to do. And I felt like I was saying that the whole weekend. And in that time where I was um, meditating, I felt like Jesus was walking beside me and I was saying that to him. And I was just saying, what, what am I supposed to do? I just don't know what to do. And he turned it to me and said, um, Carly, it doesn't matter what you do. What matters is that you know that I will never leave you or forsake you. I can hold on to that. Whatever happens, you know, however this goes down, whether I'm here for my kids or not, here for my husband or not, I can know that that's true. I just remember thinking, Lord, I, I, I can endure a lot of things, but I don't want you to take my best friend. I don't want you to take I don't want you to take my best friend from me. I don't want you to take my wife. I need her. Uh, that was really hard to face the reality that, no, what you really need is me. And she's a blessing and bringing my blessing to you. But what you really need is me. I realized how much I really do long for really good circumstances um, and that I was hoping in my circumstances, not hoping in God. Peace with God means embracing that the world is broken, embracing that uh, because of sin, capital S, and then sins in my own life, uh, I'm broken and we are broken. Um, and yet Jesus came in order to justify me before God that I might be able to have peace with him. 
And when you have peace with God, then you can have the peace of God. There is no plan B for my life and for our life, that there's only plan A. What I really need, what God really has created in me to need is Him, not better circumstances. And so um, that's what I need to cling to, is Him.